Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Greetings. He who inaugurated his miraculous ministry at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee by turning water into wine. As we remember this wine was the best wine, not the wine normally saved for the end of the feast after people have had lots to drink. Um, But it was the best wine at first. We know that he is new wine. The New Testament wine of his blood, the blood of the new covenant. New wine is not normally better wine, but in this case, it is not just better. Everybody say, it is the best. It's the best wine that ever was. When the psalmist praised our good God for the good things that he has done, he called wine a blessing from God to make his heart merry. Some of you who are artistically minded, uh, look for... A plaque. I, I was reading through this, and, and Luke, I said, this, this should be a plaque in our kitchens, okay? Listen for it here in the psalm. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord God, O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who lays the beams of his chambers in the waters, and who maketh the clouds his chariot, and walketh upon the wings of the wind. Who makes his angel spirits, his minister, a flaming fire. Who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with the garment. And thy waters stood above the mountains. As they rebuke, they fled. At thy rebuke, they fled. And the voice of thy thunder, they hasted away. They go up by the mountains and they go down by the valleys. Unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills, and they give drink to every beast of the field and wild ass, and quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. Now listen to this. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted, where the birds make their nest. As for the stork and the fir trees are her house, 
The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats and the rocks and the conies. He appointed the moon for seasons and the sun knows is going down. Now makes darkness and it is night wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions do roar after their prey and seek their meat from God. The sun arises and gather themselves together and lays down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto the work of his labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is the great and wide sea wherein the things and creeping things innumerable, both small and great beasts. There goes the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait upon all of thee that they may give them their meat in due season. Thou givest them and they gather. They open thine hand for they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face and they are troubled and takest away their breath and they die and they return to their dust. Thou sendest forth the spirit and they are created and thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looketh on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live and I will sing praise unto my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet and I will be glad in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. And everybody said, praise ye the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, you have called us into your presence to worship and we have eagerly come. We are coming today uh, praying that once again, as you have always done, as your mercies are new every morning, Lord, as you add, you have an advocate before you day and night for us, that you would forgive our sins, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. And we know that you will and that you have. And Lord, we know that we come here hungry today, longing to hear your voice. And as you speak to us, Lord, you will fill us with the fruits of righteousness, Lord. Lord, that you will strengthen us and change us that we might be more like you. I pray today, Lord, that we would not be the same as we were when we came into this place, but that you would change us into your image more and more day by day. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. standing for a few more moments as I read my text for you from the book of Luke chapter 5 verses 39 through 33 through 39 I know it's a little bit of a silly title the message is not silly country mouse city mouse Um, Jesus was not above speaking anecdotally telling Simple stories about a woman who lost a coin, right? Uh, About any number of things uh, to help us understand. Because sometimes when it's explained, we miss it. We don't understand. But with an anecdote, oftentimes we can. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers in the same manner the disciples of the Pharisees? While they eat and drink. To whom he says, can you make the children of the marriage bed to fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them. Then shall they fast in those days. And he spoke a parable to them. No person puts a piece of a new garment on an old garment. Otherwise, what is new is torn. What is added of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no person puts new wine into old bottles. Otherwise, the new wine will, be, will burst the bottles and will be spilled. But the bottles will be lost. But new wine must be put into new bottles and both are preserved. And no person who has drunk old wine immediately desires new wine. For he says, the old is better. Let us pray. Lord, as we try to relate what this means and what it meant to the disciples uh, who were listening, I'm sure it meant very little to the Pharisees who were listening, and I'm sure it was mainly for us and for the disciples. But I pray that we could understand it and apply it to our lives in such a way to not only be hearers of the word, but to be doers, that your light would shed... uh, on our hearts in such a way that we can see where we err, where we follow after superstition, where we follow after the flesh, where we follow after the inclinations of our heart rather than the Word of God. May we be lovers of the Word. May we be uh, devoted to your holiness and not to our particular desires. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Somewhere along the line in my life, I don't really remember when, but I encountered an adaptation of Aesop's fable called Country Mouse and the City Mouse. Now, uh, I ask if you'd heard of the story. Do you guys know the story? Um, It has its origins really, really, really old, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, even more than a thousand years. But the story basically kind of goes like this. There's a city mouse. And he comes to visit his cousin in the country. And when he comes to visit him in the country, he's kind of appalled at the way that he lives. I mean, I can't really believe you guys out here in the country eat this kind of food and live in this kind of house. And you really don't have anything fun to do. Uh, You should come to the city. And so the country mouse goes to the city where... He's almost eaten by dogs and cats and chased around. And, of course, there's a lot of good food in those trash cans. Uh, But it's dangerous and scary. And the the country mouse finally comes to the point, I think I just want to go back home where where it's not so exciting. Uh, but 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 the city mouse stays in the city. Now, you might say, what on earth could this possibly have to do with what we're talking about? Well, it does. Um, I think the reason why... The story has endured for centuries, and if you've ever taken the time to read about uh, these little stories that reoccur, is because they touch on something that's so true that everyone can relate. You ever you ever listen to a comedian talk, and when what when you laugh the most is when he says something that it's almost like he's been looking in the windows of your house, right? Like he said something, and you just like, hey, I didn't know, I didn't know that that must happen at everybody's house. You know, that's probably what makes us laugh. So when we read this a story like this. Um, he, it, it, it nails human nature so keenly that everybody can relate to the story. Whether you are a country mouse and you're content with what you have been used to all of your life, or you're a city mouse and you're delighted uh, with what's familiar to you in the city, everyone has reasons why 
where they are in life and what they do in life is really the best way to live if you're really, really smart. You guys, under, does that make any sense? Uh, for the Robinettes, this was made uh, more keenly aware in our family when a country mouse in, in uh, Matthew Murphy over here, at least that's what he thinks of himself, came to visit the city mice here in, uh, in the big city of Columbus. Of course, we live pretty far out in the country too, but there was a lot of Virginia, you know, and, and, and our kids are like, well, here in Columbus, we have this, and there's job opportunities, and there's this, and there's that, and in our, you know, everybody where they are, they like it. And so I'm like, guys, if Matthew came here and he hated his home, then there would be something wrong with him. That's where he lives. He likes it there, you know? And if we hated ours here, we would be discontent and we would be miserable. But it's a normal thing. Eventually, and I said, probably he'll be talking on the phone to his parents and he'll be telling them about how great it is here in the city and how they should all come here too. Uh, but, but it is our inclination. What we get used to and what we like, we think everybody needs to do that. Okay? And in this comes into the church. And it's come into our church a lot. It's come into our lives. We prefer certain things. We like certain things. Things are more comfortable to us. Now, in our minds, it's hard for us to, to separate the fact that what we prefer and what we like is not the most holy and most godly and the best thing to do. Because, of course, it is. And that's why we do it, Steve, right? The reason why we want chickens or ducks in our house or whatever, right? Uh, and we want those because, you know... The, they're better than, than these eggs that you know are raised in these places and the chickens never see the light of day and they never eat a bug and whatever and blah, blah, blah. And we go down. And, and, and it's right and righteous to have chickens, right? In fact, it's the most holy way to live. It's more holy to, to milk your own cow and get good milk from this cow than it is to go over to these places where they pump them full of all of this yunky stuff and blah, 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 right? And of course... Our way is the right way, and, and, and never the twain shall meet. Now, the other night, we were here, and we were having our congregational meeting, and we were talking about how life might change if God blessed us with a building in downtown Mount Sterling instead of out here, miles and miles from the nearest anything. Uh, I could almost see the wheels turning in, in uh, Luke's mind. He was looking, and he's picturing, me and my family, we could walk to church. You know, and I could just imagine, you know, Laura's pushing uh, the, the thing and, and the little ones, you know, kids have bonnets on their heads and they're walking through the town and, and townspeople are seeing the people walking to church and, and they look over and Jonathan and Ashley have Nora and she's coming down, right? And they're coming down the street and they look over and they're like, hark, there's Josh, my brother and his little child. And as they converge together on the steps of the building, and Sophie is playing the pipe organ, you know, and the bells are ringing, and we're like, oh, if we only had a church in the city. Uh, the big mounts, the big sterling metropolis that we all imagine, right? Behind stained glass windows, uh, serenaded by Sophie with the glorious pipe organ. Wouldn't that be great? Now, one of our great temptations is to make what we prefer, what we like best, what everyone must do. Say, what everyone must do. Early on in our ministry, we were working in downtown and, and uh, we're working in, in you, know, you know the place, right? In the bottoms, it's a pretty rough area, pretty yucky. And, and we were riding around in our car with one of the young people from the church and they were, they were just going, they're like, you know, 
you're here on the front lines doing God's work while people are out in the country in their churches and whatever. And, and I remember riding up front, I think my wife turned around and goes, uh, did you know it would be just as godly to be in the country as it is to be where we are right now? Because the, the godliest place to be is where God has called you. That's the godliest place to be. Does that make any sense? He called Abraham to leave Ur and to go out into somewhere else. So he's out in the country. Wow, is that great? Well, he told him to go look for a city. So is it the city or the country? What is it? It's where God calls you. Bonhoeffer, uh, in his uh, cost of discipleship, says, where God bids you come, you must come. Everyone does not need to aspire to walk across Deer Creek Lake. But when Jesus said to Peter, come, he needed to come. It went from being a possibility to being an imperative. Because Jesus told Peter to come, what must he do now? He must leave the boat and walk out. The most holy place on the earth is not to walk on Deer Creek. But for Peter, it was his calling. Does that make sense to you all? Okay. Now, back to our text. Okay, we'll get back. Maybe we'll get back to the country mouse, the city mouse, whatever. We'll see. Here in the life of Christ, all three synoptic gospels records the same incident just following the call of Matthew, the tax collector, the publican. If you remember his calling of this worst kind of sinner, it perplexed the Pharisees. And they, this did not make any sense to them whatsoever. You picked who? Right? And so the Pharisees now are there and they're questioning him and and they're, they're, they're wanting to cause problems is what they're trying to do. They were always trying to trick Jesus to subvert him in some way that they could. And of course, aren't we glad Jesus was smarter than they were? Amen. You know, sometimes we are baited into having discussions that, that we just don't need to have. You know? And, and what, what, what they do is they come in clever ways to divide us. Right? We see the Pharisees, really, we see the devil at work. You know, the Pharisees were not the enemy, it was the devil. The Bible says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. So when people oppose us within the church, or uh, really the Pharisees, they were Jews. Jesus came unto his own, his own were the Jews, and the Pharisees, they were the leaders. So they were the people that should have uh, been best qualified to come to him in a sense but they were not they were used by the devil here so we see them at work in trying to define divide them from the disciples of john imagine this this must have been quite a time in the life of christ here we have the forerunner of of jesus christ john the baptist we know that he leaps in the womb we know that he's given a miraculous birth we know that he has an incredible ministry that he's baptizing people he even baptizes jesus but the way that they live is very different from the disciples of jesus wouldn't this kind of cause some consternation i mean here the disciples of john are they're fasting and they're depriving themselves and they're praying and john taught them to pray very specific ways and so they were known. They were like, like they were Baptists, okay? The John the Baptist, they were Baptists, right? And so these Baptist people, and they weren't Baptists in the sense that we use the term, but they were John the Baptist's disciples. And they lived a different way. Now, imagine being that. And here he is, the forerunner of Christ, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes, and his disciples, they don't fast. And they don't pray like John the Baptist do. 
And instead of, you know, depriving their flesh and being so somber and sober, they're laughing and they're, you know, they're eating and they're leaning on each other and they're telling jokes and they're hanging out and they're like, what is going on here? These people are doing something wrong. Can you imagine living in that time? Here we have the disciples of John acting one way and now the disciples of Jesus acting another. So the devil goes to the Pharisees and he starts at work in their heart and he wants to divide. He wants to divide the disciples of John so that they feel that there's a separation between them and the disciples of Jesus Christ. Later on in the Bible, all the way in Acts chapter 19, there are disciples of John still living. These people are living and they're being encountered by the disciples of Jesus and they're being taught a whole nother way. Now, why on earth would God have a set of disciples live one way and then the next set of disciples another? Well, which one was best? I mean, don't you think you could follow John and his disciples and see how they lived and get a good example? It's right there in the Bible. He's the forerunner of Christ. He has the spirit of Elijah on him, right? But the way that his ministry and his disciples played out the way that it was, was so different from the disciples of Jesus. It almost caused division because they couldn't understand the how. Everybody say the how. It wasn't, it wasn't the what. Did the disciples of Jesus pray? Yeah, they prayed. Now, they didn't fast, though, at all. That would be kind of confusing. I mean, fasting's not a... We, we should do this, right? But Satan and his minions are very, very, very clever, and they're always out to divide. God hates division and causing division among uh, the people of God. He hates it a lot, okay? Now, I've been talking about this lately, and I'm going to take the opportunity to talk about it again for just a moment. Proverbs 6.16 says this. Everybody say it with me. These six things does the Lord hate. Now, if the Bible tells us that God hates six things, I mean, it's hard to remember all the things God hates, right? But if we knew six things that God hated, how many people would stay away from those six things if you could? But then he says, God hates those six things, but there's a seventh thing he hates above all those six things. Now, if there's only one thing mentioned, how many of you would like to not be a part of that one absolutely horrible, abominable thing that God hates? Everybody say, everybody wave your hand like this, like crazy people almost. Woo, someone's getting the Holy Ghost right there in the back. All right. So here we have six things that the Lord hates, seven are abomination, a proud look. Now you might even go, a proud look. God doesn't like it. God doesn't like it when, when you look in such a way that makes other people think you're better than them. God doesn't like that. Really? Oh, that's how you do things in Virginia? Oh. A lying tongue. Everybody hate lying is not good. Hands that shed innocent blood. Heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feast swift to run to mischief. And then he mentioned a false witness that speaks lie. We hate all those things, right? The last one. He that sows discord among the brethren. What's discord? Discord is this. Matthew. You know why I like you? Because you're like me. It's not like Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you come to church, you dress up and 
Well, he dresses up, but look, he wears a vest and a jacket. You know, he thinks he's better than we are because he's different than us. Look at that. That's discord. We're, we are not like him. That's what the devil does. He, what he does is he takes things that aren't bad. I mean, it's, it's good to dress up for church, right? But what if, well, look at Bill. Bill's not even wearing a tie. <laughs> I mean, Andy's an elder, but he's not even wearing a tie. I mean, you would think that they would be close enough to God to know that the right thing to do is to wear a tie. And you might go, oh, come on. I am telling you that the devil is smart. And what he does is he takes good things. Everybody say good things. Good things that we should do, okay? We should honor the Lord, respect the Lord. You shouldn't come to church in your worst. You shouldn't come dirty and filthy and whatever. You don't wear your, you know, your jogging suit from the 1980s to church. <laughs> but the deal is he takes good things that we should do and he uses them for us to get alliances with certain people and go, oh, look, you know, look at them. Look at them. You know, you know, those so-and-sos never wear this or those so-and-sos never wear that. Well, they must think they're better than us. There are people that come to our church who think that we think they're better than they are because, you know, they don't have a beard. And then I point back, I'm like, well, look at Bill. Bill doesn't have a beard, and, and, and he's almost saved. I mean, he's, all, he's on the back row, and soon he'll have a tie and a beard. We're all praying for him, right? But it is what, what happens, okay? He that sows discord among the brethren. People that go and they try to divide. They try to say, you know, Jacob, you know, we're close, you know, because we're smart. You know, those other kids are really stupid. So all the smart kids start hanging around Jacob because everyone knows how smart he is, you know? And so, so he's like, well, you know, they would be smart too if they read books instead of played video games all day. Now, is it a good thing to read books? Is it a good thing that if God's blessed you with a, a, a nice, you know, round head with a big brain? Right? That's not a bad thing. Heck, in Presbyterianism, uh, uh, being smart might be the highest thing that you can be. Better than even being kind. Shouldn't be. Anyway, he that sows discord among the brethren. That's what the devil was doing. He was taking something they did. He's talking about prayer and fasting. Everybody, prayer and fasting. They don't do it like we do. Right? So is it a bad thing that the Pharisees fast and the Pharisees pray? I mean, this we're not arguing about, you know, they, they bowl on Sundays, right? You know, they go to the bowling alley and they'll drink beer on Sundays. You know? I mean, that's not the argument here. The argument here is they don't pray like we do. Now, what did he mean by that? You see, John taught his disciples to pray at certain times of the day. Do you guys remember in the temple, they would say at the third hour of prayer. Do you guys remember this? Or they had this hour of prayer and that hour of prayer. They were very specific. And the disciples of John also copied what happened with uh, the Pharisees. Do you know that the, the, the Pharisees literally fasted on Tuesdays and Thursdays? Those were their fast days. Now, is it wrong to fast two days a week? Everybody say, it's not wrong to fast two days a week. In fact, what I'm going to tell you is I think that we should be fasting. And we're not. That's bad. Okay, we can learn that from what we're going to hear today. We are not fasting, but Jesus says we should be fasting. How many want to do what Jesus says we should be doing? Okay, Robinettes do not have regular fasting that goes on in our life. All right. Now, at times in my life, I fasted a lot. But I think I didn't understand it as much as maybe I do now. But the point being is that John had certain hours that they prayed and he had certain days that they fasted. And so did the Pharisees. And they liked this. They're like, well, look at them. They, they're, they're with the program. 
They fast at certain times and they pray at certain times. If you were a Muslim, there are five times a day that you pray. Alright? Is there anything wrong with having certain times a day to pray? There's nothing wrong with it. But you know what's wrong? It's when Amy doesn't have those times of prayer the same time you do and it bothers you. And you want to make sure Amy knows what time godly people pray and how many times they pray and how much they pray. Does the Bible tell us how many times a day to pray, how much to pray, and how to pray when we pray? Now, it mentions things that we're supposed to do, right? You know, I would that men would be everywhere lifting holy hands, right, without wrath and prayer. That we should, that we should you know, be, we should pray without ceasing, that we should enter into our closet and pray. But people can make a thing of prayer. Say, making a thing of prayer. They make a, a, a thing of fasting. They make a thing of giving. If you remember Jesus, uh, and I've really gone completely off, my, off the reservation here. I apologize. They make a thing of it. They want to have a conference. They want to write a booklet. They want to show you how to do it. This is what we don't do, and this is what we do. I remember uh, in the subject of, of courtship, actually, uh, about a year or two ago, someone said, well, have you read so-and-so's church manual on this subject? And I was, I literally, I was like, what? That's like trying to, let's have a manual on something there, there is no manual for. It's a man-made way of doing things, but they're going to apply this to their church and to all the people in their church. I'm telling you right now, this is not the way. Everybody say, it's not the way. No, no, no. I mean, what if, what if we did it? Here's how you should decorate your home. It should be, you should have stuff on every wall and every shelf. And, and it should have memories attached to your life. And it should cover everything up. And that's the way it should be if you're really godly. Because that's remembering the good things of God. I, I mean, you can sell anything, guys. This is how you're supposed to do it. That was a problem, and we'll get into this. And Jesus deals with them in a parable here, as we see. Now, let me finish up a little bit on this division thing. I told you before that a heretic, by definition, is a divider in the church. They cause division. Oh, we're the people that play music. Oh, well, we're the, we're the, we're the, people, that, we're the people that have a donkey, and nobody else has a donkey, you know. And, and so we're friends with the other donkey families in our church and, and uh, you know, whatever. And, and you know, we're, we live on a farm, and, and only godly people live on farms. And the people that live in the city, well, well you, know, you, know, you know what God thinks about them. Um, he did says that we're supposed to go out, you know, and so we're out, and you're not in, and all this kind of craziness, all right? <laughs> A heretic, by definition, is a divider. Today, he is known as a false teacher. If you say heretic, most, most people believe that what you mean is someone that teaches something that isn't true. But it's not the message of the heretic that disturbs God so much, and not that he's not disturbed by their bad message. It's by what it does. It divides us. Luke and, and Bill and, and Steve back there in their crew, well, we're, the, we're the double sub, pre-tribulation, rapture, uh, Jesus is coming at 4.30 on Sunday in the year 2089, we know for a fact, group, right? Or he never is, and he already did, and let me explain to you everything, and I know all about it, that group, okay? These divisions do not please God because they come from pride, 
and foolishness. If God doesn't tell us something, what we are tempted to do is fill in the blanks. It's like, we, you ever get those pictures like at Bob Evans, you know, with the numbers on them? We can't see the picture, but we draw it all and we go, oh yeah, this is the picture. We try to fill in the blanks where there are no dots and, and make things. Uh, we, we love to know exactly how to do everything. But as Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. And so we need not to allow this in our church, not to allow it in our families. Uh, and we need to be militant about it. It is ugly. God hates it, okay? God hates division in the church. So here come the dividers. They show that they have much in common with the disciples of John the Baptist, but not with the followers of Jesus. Notice what they have in common is something good, something godly, something pious. This makes the temptation so much more powerful. How we pray, how we fast. It might be worth separating over. It's only a holy thing, and holy things must be done right. Can you see the temptation? Oh, if men were immune to these temptations as we see the Savior was. For the devil comes in our midst. He divides us through our, even through our devotion to God as much as he does um, others by their ungodly lives. The whole time we feel righteous in our sin and we miss how the tempter has divided us again and again. Jesus ignores their ploy and he teaches some powerful lessons. He declares himself to be the Messiah. The bridegroom, he explains some of the reason for their odd behavior and the odd behavior of the disciples. He then declares plainly something the disciples will be doing differently later. And finally, he directs them to the future, to a new age where things will seem worse, but they'll actually get better. You see, in the first century mind, new things were never better things. We live in a world now where when something is new, we think it's better. If you have an iPhone 6, what's even better? An iPhone 7. If you got Windows, you know, 7, what would be even better? But Windows 45, right? So everything new is always better. But in the mindset of the people then, the old was the best. And there are some things still like that today. If you want a good wine, do you go and get... Uh, yes, Benita, I'm bringing to the, your party a, a you know, uh, a Reuniti 2017. And I'm handing that to you. And, you're, you know, you're really impressed, right? Is that a fine wine? No, you're not going to get a fine wine that was just bottled from the grapes of, you know, well, there, there haven't really been any grapes yet. So 2016, all right? But someone says, I have an 1865 blah, blah, Chateau Lafitte. And you go, wow, that, that might be pretty nice. Why? Because it's old. The older the wine is, the better. Just like philosophy, when people would talk about ideas, if they could tie them to things ancient, they seemed to be better. But now we tie them to things new. So this is what their problem was. When the Pharisees saw something new happening, it seemed to be novel. And it seemed to be unimportant. And it seemed to be odd. Imagine, I was telling the guys up front, I'm like, imagine... Jesus comes on the scene and he's establishing something new, right? The new covenant and there's going to be a new way, but he does it. And so he goes and they have these giant temples, you know, and they have these incredible outfits, right? And they, you know, the walls are stone and in them, they have 500 year old books and 800 year old books. And what they have seems to be so more substantial, right? And Jesus is like, and you know what? You're right to think that, but in this case, it isn't the case. Old would seem to be better, but old is not better now. You see, old was really something that was going to pass away. And what is new is the great thing. People sometimes will fall in love with the shadow of the thing and not the thing itself. You see, all the things in the law, all they were were pictures of things that would come to be in the New Testament. And those things would be more lovely. And although it went against human nature in many ways... 
to think of the new thing as the better thing, Jesus was trying to explain him that it, that it was. Imagine being a disciple. How substantial would you feel? You have no church to go to. You have no synagogue to meet in. You have no ordination process established uh, that has been around forever that when you came that they, you know, I was at church, Jonathan, we went to the Catholic church, St. Joseph's and I'm up and I'm watching them and they got the miter on and they got the deal on and they're holding the scepter and it's made of gold. And I'm like, I love it. And you might go, what do you love? Well, if I had lived during the reformation, I would not love it, but I love it because I can see the symbols behind it all. I can see them taking the word of God and holding it up and they kiss it. And, and I see that this guy's represented as the vicar of Christ. And I see that we're trying to say this scepter shows that, hey, I'm not just here in this church, but the power of God and the kingdom of God has come here to earth right now. I see the symbols. But you see what happens is in their case, and even in the case of the Catholic church, their symbols became the things that they love. And they left the God they love and they kept the symbols. And that's what makes them ugly. Does that make sense? And so what the new thing that come, the new wine comes and, and, and they want to put it in an old bottle. And he said, oh, you can't do that. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying, and I know you don't think this new wine is good, but let me tell you what it is. But people aren't going to desire it. How hard is it if you, if you go over to Russia and you go over there with some of those brothers that I know that I've been with. You know what one of their hardest things to deal with Jonathan is? They're like, people are used to the Russian Orthodox Church. He goes, if you're trying to have church in your living room and you're telling them about Jesus, and then, and then what do they have to compare to it? A basilica? Everything's covered in gold? All these great traditions? All this history? Guys, if you don't understand why this is hard for people to deal with, then you don't understand how people think. It's weird people that want to buy the, you know, the new thing that no one's ever heard of. It is our nature to love things that are established and that are in tradition and that they're old and that they're tried and true. Some of our brothers and sisters in Presbyterianism who end up going wrong, they end up becoming Orthodox or they end up becoming Catholic because of that very thing. They love, they're like, they're like well, we love those things. What they're loving is they're loving the form, but not the God of the form. And so they're looking for more history and they're looking for more form and they're looking for more sim- symbolism. But those people have not followed the God of these things. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is talking about this. He's explaining to them that we're different because things are different now. Okay? This story in Matthew 5, it's also in uh, Mark, or it's in Mark chapter 2. And it's in Matthew 9, Luke 5, and Mark 2. You can read it. It's three different accounts of it. But this is important enough for all three Gospels to really mention this story. And so... Here we are today. So I'll try to run through this as quick as I can. They said unto him, why do the disciples of John fast often? They make prayers in the same manner, the disciples and the Pharisees, while while your disciples eat and drink. We see again, they're not merely asking a question. They're sowing discord, but they're doing it in a way to appeal to their like-minded nature. You know, we like to say we are around people that are like-minded. Now, this can be good and this can be bad. The like-mindedness that we share first is what? Is it that we're homeschoolers? Is that we, uh, are, you know, we believe in God's ordained order for our homes? Is that the first thing? That we believe the very best way to, to do things is this way or that way. Is that the best thing and the first thing that binds us together? It is not. And I'm not saying those things are not wonderful. As Jesus said, you know, 
the Pharisees do all these things, and these ought you to do. I'm 100% still for all the things I've always been for. But I'm not for them above the fact that I have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the place that don't do things like we do. I don't like the way they do them. I don't think they're right about what they're doing. But I'm telling you, it is a temptation of the devil to cause us to look at our differences like that. And it's what will separate us. It's what, it's what keeps us from even knowing the name of any person that attends that church that we can see through the window of this building. It is what, it is what shows ugliness instead of beauty. We should know everyone who professes the name of Christ and who is devoted to him and loves him that lives anywhere near here. And we don't even know hardly any of them. Now, by God's grace, we're getting to meet them, even through difficult things, even through the benefit concert. All of a sudden, people are coming in, and the Foises are meeting neighbors who love the Lord, who live right down the road. Now, they go to a different church down the road, but now we're starting to get to know that. If we really are a kingdom, and even though we do things different, we, we ought to be able to go, God might be at work over there, just like he's at work over here, maybe, but in our minds... We get tempted by the devil to think, well, he's only working here. And when everyone in the world does it like we do it, then the kingdom will come and God's will will be done. Our nature is to have everyone around us doing what we prefer. This is not always a bad thing, but it can grow to be troublesome weed that needs to be removed from the church. Calvin said this, quote, different manner in which Christ, the different manner in which Christ acted was an occasion of enmity and dislike to those whose temper was unamiable and who were excessively devoted to themselves. Everybody say devoted to themselves. Sometimes the right things that we do can, can become a self way, another way of being self-centered. Okay, Self-centeredness takes on a lot of forms. Do you know loving your wife can be self-centered? Because the, you know, the guy who's always talking about his wife and writing poems for his wife and telling everyone what a great wife he has. Well, whose wife is it? It's my wife. And the nicer I am to my wife, the nicer, the, and the greater you think she is, maybe the greater you think I am. And the more I'm nice to her, the more she's nice to me. This can be a very self-centered thing. Our family, the usual family, the Robinette family. Loving your family, taking care of your family, promoting your family is another way of just really going, look at me, look at me, look how smart we are. Look how good we are. Look how wonderful we are. Look, look, I just want to, you know, it's a way of being self-centered. And doing good and godly things is, is also a way that we can become very self-centered. When we get people to do things the way we, we are, when you're exceedingly and excessively, as Calvin says, devoted to yourself, it is easy to, to, to then try to put on other people the burden of how you live. Love of a good name. Love of prayer and fasting. It usually takes the form of having things done a certain way. Not that it's wrong for you to do things a certain way. Not that you have to watch is when the way that you do it turns into your need. Everybody say your need to have everyone around you do it that way too. We do family worship at breakfast and that's godly people do that because the Bible says early in the morning this and the Bible says this about morning time and blah, 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 right? And we go, well, we do it at night because it says, let them sing aloud upon their beds. And, and in the midnight hour, it says here, and then we become the, you know, these people that separate. Now, we don't separate over that here, but I'm telling you, in church history, and again and again, people have. Remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, they love to pray. Now, if, if I told you someone loved to pray, don't you think that starts off sounding good? 
Matthew 6. Who's he talking about? The hypocrites. He said they love to pray. The hypocrites love to pray? Yeah. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets. And they might go, well, you know what? We like to proclaim the good news of God. We go to the synagogue because it says, you know, uh, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. What was Jesus' What was Jesus' uh, indictment of them for? That they love to pray? Or that they developed a way of praying and a place of praying that ended up praying became a thing. Fasting became a thing. They love to pray standing in the synagogues in the, in the corner of the streets. How they, it says they love to give a certain way. They love to fast a certain way. Jesus would go against it. He would say, hey, you know, you, you need to not do like they do. Now, was he saying don't pray and don't fast and don't give? He's saying you need to distance yourself from people that have made this good thing that I've given you, made it into a thing. They've made prayer a thing and they've, they've dialed it down and they've got it perfect. They made fasting into a thing and they, they go and they put ash on their head and they walk around. And he, don't, don't do that. Don't, they've made it a thing. They probably had stores you could get the best ash that showed up the best on your head that let people know, you know, I don't know, but they did. They love to pray. They love to fast. They love to give. It's not bad. It's how they did it. The example reminds us that prudence and caution are always necessary to prevent wicked and cunning men from showing divisions among us on any slight ground. Satan has a wonderful dexterity, Calvin says, in laying those snares. And it is easy to distress about trifling things. But we ought especially to beware lest the unity of the faith be destroyed or the bond of charity broken on account of outward ceremonies. Did you guys hear Colossians chapter 2? And maybe it's hard for you to hear it because you didn't know what I was going to preach about. But Paul, in, in, in Colos- he's like, you know, there are things that appear to be godly and holy and self-deprivating you know, so, that, so that you do right. And they appear all that and they seem to be holy. But those things end up becoming things. God is impressed by that. He said, you need to be careful when men start making up a whole bunch of rules for you and how you're supposed to do everything. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Don't do this. Don't do this. When they start doing all these things, you better watch out. And that's why as your pastor, one of the elders of the church, anytime someone brings up, well, maybe we should make a rule. I'm like, no, we got enough rules. Oh, well, but that would be easy. It's an easy way out to make a rule. The hard way is to do something according to God's word and let other people figure out how to do it according to God's word instead of figuring out the way everyone ought to do it. You want to hear some huge wisdom from Calvin? I, I, I did this whole quote here. Try to, try to follow me if you can. He said, Accordingly, they do not hesitate for the most part to prefer the merest rudiments to the highest perfection. What happens is, is people begin to love the way but not the Jesus the way. You understand? They love the how, but not the who. Okay? They prefer the merest rudiments to the highest perfection. This followed by another evil arises out of the fastidiousness of pride. When every man would willingly compel the whole world to copy his example. If anything pleases us, we forthwith desire to make it a law that others may live according to our pleasure. You see, when we get everyone to do things the way we do, we like it. And there are some things I know that I like. And I've seen this in me. I'm like, you know what? I like certain things a certain way. And in my house, I think it's okay. But I don't think it's okay for me to impose on the church what I like. Does that make sense? That's not godly. 
When we read the disciples of John were caught by the snares of Satan, let us first uh, learn not to place holiness in outward and indifferent matters, and at the same time to restrain ourselves by moderation and equity, that we may not desire to restrict others to what we approve, but may allow everyone to retain his freedom. You see, one of the great marks of Christianity is that there is a freedom of doing things different ways. Does the Bible explain exactly how we're to observe the Sabbath? Not exactly. There were good men of God who differed on this. Calvin and Knox differed. You know, Knox went to visit Calvin and he got there on the Sabbath and they were out on the lawn and they were lawn bowling when Knox arrived. Now, this horrified him. Knox was like, what on earth are you doing? I mean, can you imagine John Calvin with the long beard and everything? They've got the, they have bowling pins set up in the lawn and he's throwing the ball at the time Knox rolls in. Now, Knox believes on Sundays, the way to, on, on the Lord's Day, the best way to honor the Lord is to sit in quiet meditation and only read the Bible and do not play games and do not, you know, right? That, that was his idea. Now, is it wrong for Knox to observe the Sabbath that way? Absolutely not. And we should not be trying to get him to lawn bowl with us. Does that make sense? If he feels this is the way to honor God, let him honor God that way. But what happens, what can be, is we lawn bowl and we go, yeah, those people can't lawn bowl. They're a bunch of, you know, Presbyterians from, from Scotland who are, you know, they're so uptight they can't lawn bowl. And I'm telling you, that causes a lot of pain. And they're over there going, you know what, if those people would get right with Jesus and quit playing games on the Sabbath day, then, we, then our church would have revival. On both sides of the aisle, both people are wanting people to do what they have determined to be the exact right thing to do when the Bible doesn't exactly say what to do. I think we could be more honorable to God on the Sabbath than we are. There's something to learn from both sides of that thing. In verse 34 of Luke chapter 5, to whom he says, Can you make the children of the marriage bed to fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is a, they call the, the children of the marriage bed, okay? What they were saying, people that attend the wedding. He said, when you go to a wedding, are, are you wanting people to come in sackcloth and ashes? Jesus was declaring himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the bridegroom for the bride of Christ. And he's saying the, the marriage supper of the lamb is happening. We're at the feast. Here we are. I'm marrying the church right here. And he's saying, is, is, you think it's time to be fasting? I mean, imagine if someone came to Jeff and Amy's wedding and they're like, you know, I'm fasting today. In fact, you know, you, you shouldn't have got married on a Tuesday because that's the day we fast. That would be kind of a, a downer, wouldn't it? You'd be like, whoa. We're getting married, and you know we didn't kill a whole pig and everything, you know. Um, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall take be taken from them, and they shall fast. Everybody say they shall fast. In those days, are we fasting? He was taken up. We're hard about our work. Are we? Are we a fasting people? I don't know if you even know what the didoche is, but it is a manual of church instruction from near the end of the first century. Let me quote to you from it. It says, let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. You should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Now, what's good about this is they were distancing themselves. Jesus said, don't fast like them. 
Now we would get it out. We would think, well, that means we shouldn't fast. The early church father said, well, that means we should fast on different days than they do. Now, were they wrong? I don't know. But Jesus did say, don't do like they do. And so they were really taking Jesus literally not to do what they do. And they were separating themselves. In other words, early church fathers sought to distance themselves from the emptiness of fasting without losing the value of the practice. They knew they should keep doing it, but they didn't want to do it the way they were doing it. Does that make sense? Epiphanius, a bishop in Italy in the 5th century, said, Who does not know that the fast in the 4th and 6th days of the week is observed by all Christians throughout the whole world? Pretty amazing. Calvin said this in his Institutes, Let us say something about fasting because many, for want of knowing of its usefulness, undervalue its necessity and some reject it as almost superfluous. While on the other hand, we, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. Holy and legitimate fasting is directed to three ends. If we practice it either to restrain our flesh, preserve us from licentiousness and preparing us for prayers and pious meditations. Or as a testimony of humiliation in the presence of God when we are desirous of confessing our guilt before Him. What would happen if when we sinned against the Lord, or maybe we sinned against one of our loved ones in our family, if we showed our repentance by saying, you know what, honey, I shouldn't have treated you that way. Children, I shouldn't have acted that way. And I'm not going to eat for the next few days. And I really am sorry. I mean, how many would find that objectionable? I wouldn't. I'd be like, wow. Okay, it's easy. I mean, saying you're sorry is one thing, but showing your sorrow is another. Imagine if when we were faced with things of difficulty in our church that we couldn't overcome. Maybe we're so full in our building we can't deal with it. Maybe we have a sister who's ill and we can't see the results of healing. And we say, you know what, let's fast. Let's pray. It would show that we believe that it works. We believe that God hears our prayers. There were times when things happened in the scripture and Jesus said, well, this one's not a normal one. This is not a normal situation. This can only be dealt with by prayer and fasting. Yet when none of us fast, I don't think on a regular basis. Martin Luther wrote, as to fasting and prayers, it ought to be understood that John gave his disciples a particular training and that for this purpose, they had stated days that they fasted a settled form. They had fixed hours of prayer. Now, I reckon those prayers among the outward observances, though, for though calling on God should hold the first rank in our spiritual worship, yet the method of doing it has been adapted by unskillfulness of men, justly reckoned among the ceremonies and indifferent matters, the observance of which ought not, everybody say ought not, to be too strictly enjoined. What he's saying is, is it is tempting for us. And just devastating to our churches when we take on these particular forms to the exclusion of others or to the elevation of ourselves. Does that make sense? This is the way we do it. This is the way you ought to do it. Of fasting, I say, it is right to fast frequently in order to subdue and to control the body. But one should not fast with the view of meriting something by it as it is some sort of a good work. We are always seek the good things that we are to do and find out the best way to do it and then... We end up on a how-to conference on how everyone else ought to do it. This is where we go astray. Verse 36, he spoke the parable to them. No person puts a piece of new garment and an old garment. Otherwise, what is new is torn and what is added of the new agrees not with the old. 
not being a person that sews or has any comprehension about this, I've always, I have always not understood this at all, but it's pretty simple. If I have an old shirt and I put a bare, a new piece of cloth on it and sew a, a hole up in there, what, what happens when you wash your clothes? They shrink, right? But the new one has never shrunken. So it gets on there. And then when it gets washed and it does, it ends up tearing because it's not big enough to fill that space. Okay. And so it causes a problem. And Jesus is trying to explain, okay, we couldn't just go from Judaism. I just didn't go and grab the high Pharisees and all of a sudden institute Christianity. We had to do something new. And you couldn't put that new thing right on top of this old thing. It can't be done. And he said, this new thing I'm doing is going to seem new and it's going to seem novel, but it's going to be fantastic. He says, verse 37, no person puts new wine in old bottles. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the bottles and it'll be spilt and the bottles will be lost. But the new wine must be put in new bottles. Both are preserved. The comparison is beautifully adapted to the matter at hand. If we explain it to referring to the weak and tender disciples of Christ and to the discipline more strict than they were able to bear. In the early church... if you, had to, if you threw onto the church in the first century all the things that we have now, and this, this, is, this was at our presbytery meeting, we talked about this. Many of the men that were preachers in the early New Testament would not be allowed to preach in our pulpits. Why? Because our rules are more strict than theirs were. Now, does that make we're better? It's saying that they're different. You know, in, in Centerville, Tennessee right now, uh, the Heritage Church loves the people from... Um, there's another church in town and they're feeling great closeness, but there's a problem. Things are not done the same way over there as they are over here. Now the temptation is to say, well, if they're not doing them like we do, we can't work with them. That's a temptation. Well, we don't know how to deal with them and they do it this way and they don't have this and they don't have this form and this, and, but the, but these people, they, they're, they are less mature in a sense in that they don't have developed structures. Are those developed structures, does that make us more godly or is it just a godly blessing that God has blessed us with a good structure? The structure is good, but the structure should not go beyond more, become more important than our love for them. If we could just say, well, when they grow up and they get all the forms we have, then we'll account them equal in brothers. That's not how it should be. We should love them and just go, hey, you know what? They do it different over there. We do it different over here. Let's by, by God's grace, try to figure out how to work together. Let's move beyond our forms and let's enter into some fellowship because they are Christian brothers and sisters. I'll end with this. No person who has drunk old wine in verse 39 says, this is undoubtedly connected with the preceding discourse, though commentators have tortured it in a variety of ways to attach the importance uh, of undue, of, of a Pharisees, were, had the uh, desire to attach an undue importance to a received custom. And um, I, don't think I, can, I don't think I can go where I was planning to go. I think I'm done. Basically, and I was trying to explain this to the guys up there, and I think maybe I have explained it, that, that you, when you start with something new, like Christ was doing, it was going to seem not as impressive and not as important. I feel... You know, I even there there are parts of me of my humanity that feel you know embarrassed that we're so juvenile in our in our Christianity that we you know so when did your church start? Well, you know, fifteen years ago. You know, 
So, so, you know, I visited a church. When did your church start? Well, it started 500 years ago. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and this is what we developed. And I feel, you know. But Jesus saying what he's doing, those things that make us feel good and make us feel strong, it's not that they're bad. But when we rely on them and, and we don't see what God is doing, then we miss the point. So, anyway, it would take a lot. There was something I was going to try to teach about wine. I will throw this in just for free. Is that the wine, uh, you know how there are arguments that people, that Jesus only drank grape juice and that he turned the water into wine at Cana of Galilee, and, but it was really just grape juice, right? Well, here in the parable, uh, do you know if you put grape juice in a bottle that it really doesn't do anything? But if you put grape juice in a bottle and it has yeast in it and it's fermenting and it's wine and it has alcohol, it will burst the bottle. Okay, so this thing that Jesus is talking about is absolutely 100% a real wine analogy and not a grape juice analogy, just, just to throw that in. And I was telling some of the guys this, that if you read in the Old Testament, there are many prohibitions to wine and, and strong drink in certain occasions. Even we had read from Leviticus 10, uh, the prohibition for people who are ministering in the temple from drinking wine at all before they go in there. And I said, but now we are in the new covenant era. And God calls us into his place of worship to drink. And he does this as a way to show us that this is the new wine. This is the new covenant. And it's consistent with the parable that he taught the Pharisees. Isn't that kind of neat? All right. So how many people would like to enter fasting into your life in some way? I sure would. And I want to. And I think it would be good for us to look into it. We could have a 13-week series on why fasting is good. I think maybe we all should just know it is good. We should maybe read up on it, learn about it, find ways we can do it to honor the Lord. I'm not going to show you the right way to do it. And then everyone's going to do it exactly that way and institute a certain day that we all do it. Make a form in your life and in your family. Maybe, maybe something will develop in our church. I don't know. But we've got to not fall in love with the forms. And we've got to fall in love with our Savior and understand what these things are about. That's what Jesus was teaching in, in the parables and the stories that he taught after the calling of Matthew. Let us pray. Lord God, we love you, Lord. Sometimes we get into your word and we don't understand it and it opens up into a beautiful thing for us, something new, something glorious. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to a richer understanding of fasting, that you would lead us to a richer understanding of ourselves and how we so much want to make others conform to the things we merely prefer, not necessarily what your word has said at all. Lord, Help us, Lord, where we are weak in these areas and help us not to enter into divisions or comparing ourselves one to another or loving to pray and loving to fast and loving to give in some particular way. But Lord God, as we pray, we realize our need as we hunger and thirst after you. As we pray, we're not praying for men to see us, for people to look at us and think we're pious, but we're talking to you. And Lord, as we give, may we give knowing that you can give us all that we need and that when we give of what we have, it is by faith that we do it knowing you can provide for our needs. Lord, let us live lives focused on you, not on the forms that are oftentimes meant to lead us to you as the law was. It was the schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. But once we're in Christ, we don't need that schoolmaster. Lord, may we not continually be building schoolmasters for ourselves The best schoolmaster that ever was, was the law, and it has led us to you. May we adore you and love you 
And in doing so, live that out by our love for one for another. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.